Well, it's been a few weeks since we did Jeremiah, and when we uh, left Jeremiah, his world was falling apart. He had been doing pretty much okay as long as good King Josiah was king. But King Josiah has died, and his sons are increasingly hostile towards Jeremiah. In fact, the last time we talked, we saw that not only were they making fun of Jeremiah, it wasn't safe for him to prophesy anymore. He had actually been put in the stocks outside the temple, remember, overnight. So things are are not going well. And he got so depressed and so upset that he tried to actually stop prophesying. And he physically could not stop prophesying because the, the words burned his tongue. They burned inside of him. It was, the, the Lord was making the message that urgent that even if Jeremiah rebelled, you know, sank into depression, the Lord reminded him that this was bigger than just Jeremiah. And the Lord needed him to stand up and speak out. And the Lord promised that even though the people of Judah, the officials, the priests, the kings of the kingdom surrounding him, the Lord said, you know, Jeremiah, all of these people are going to fight against you, but I will not allow them to overcome you. It's kind of like the Lord saying, okay, Jeremiah, I promise you life will be utterly miserable, but I won't let them kill you. He said, in fact, I need you to keep on speaking my message to them because I really want to give them every chance to repent. Jeremiah, they're not going (laughs) to repent, but I still want you to keep doing this because I want to give them every chance to repent. And that in a microcosm is why bad things happen to good people. Because the Lord is giving us every chance to repent. And he's allowing evil to continue to exist and operate in this world and to affect the lives of us, Christians, people who love him. It's not okay with the Lord, but it is something he's willing to sacrifice. Just on the slim possibility that somebody might repent and be saved. And the Lord's promise to us is all throughout the Bible, but it's most beautifully spoken in Revelation where he says, just remember, my dear ones, that one day I will wipe every tear from your eye. And the Lord, all through these prophecies that we read, you know how he talks about the promises that he's made for us and the things he's going to give to us. And he's going to set it right for us. That's what judgment means. The Lord is going to come and set things right. So poor old Jeremiah. It's now the fourth year of King Jehoiakim's reign. And the Lord gives Jeremiah a brand new task. Jeremiah 36 verses 2 through 4. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations. From the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah till now. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, each of them will turn from his wicked way. Then I will forgive their wickedness and their sin. So Jeremiah called Baruch, son of Neriah. And while Jeremiah dictated all the words the Lord had spoken to him, Baruch wrote them on the scroll. What a huge task. Thank goodness Jeremiah was able to find somebody to help him. I mean, think about it. It must have taken months to write all this stuff down on a scroll. 
And of course, during this time, Jeremiah and Baruch became close friends. And Baruch was, it says, a real comfort to Jeremiah. Baruch comforted Jeremiah right when Jeremiah was at his lowest point. And it, if you've ever been persecuted or in a really bad spot, you know that there's nothing quite like having a friend stand beside you when everybody else is making fun of you. There's nothing quite like having a friend stand beside you when you just lost your job, your house, your car. People who say, you know what, I don't really matter. It doesn't matter to me what your circumstances are. You are worthwhile to me. And that's a friend. And that's what Baruch was to Jeremiah. And the Lord saw Baruch's faithfulness. Jeremiah 45. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to you, Baruch. You said, Woe to me, the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am worn out with groaning and find no rest. So Baruch was feeling just as bad as Jeremiah was. The Lord said, Say this to him, say this to Baruch. This is what the Lord says. I will overthrow what I have built and uproot what I have planted throughout the land. Should you then seek great things for yourself? Seek them not, for I will bring disaster on all people, declares the Lord. But wherever you go, I will let you escape with your life. That, I think, is a good verse to remember, should we be living when the tribulation comes. That's the best the Lord could promise him was things will be miserable, but I'll let you escape with your life. And Baruch, obviously, was thinking, oh, I've been so long-suffering, and I'm putting up with all this stuff that people are dishing out, and, you know, I, I really ought to be great. I'm a great scribe. I ought to, you know, the Lord ought to be really using me. And the Lord's saying, this is not the time, so don't even look for it. Just accept what I give you and know I'm not going to let them beat you down and kill you. So about this time, the Lord gave Jeremiah some new prophecies. Remember at the very, you may not remember, it's been a while, but at the very beginning of Jeremiah, when he was called, the Lord told him he was going to be prophesying not only to the people of Judah, but also to the other kingdoms. Okay. And now the time has come for Jeremiah to prophesy to these other kingdoms. He'd already prophesied the destruction of the Philistines in chapter 47, and we saw that had occurred when Pharaoh Necho marched from Egypt and had to march right up through the land of the Philistines on his way up to fight the Babylonians. He totally demolished the Philistines. They still exist as a people, but they don't exist very much longer as a people. By about 732 B.C., which is just, a, you know, not that much longer, just a few more years, um, they are completely wiped out by Babylon and disappear entirely as a nation. But now things are shaky for the Babylonians too. Their great king, Nabopolassar, who we've talked about, he's ill. He's gravely ill. And it's time for this year's military campaign. And you know that 
Egypt has already marched north to join forces with the Assyrians. The Babylonians absolutely must go to war. They, they can't just like skip this year because Nabopolassar is ill. So what Nabopolassar does is he sends Prince Nebuchadnezzar to lead the armies. So Prince Nebuchadnezzar goes to face Pharaoh Necho and the Assyrians. And Pharaoh Necho of Egypt is preparing for battle. And when this happens, Jeremiah receives a prophecy for, for Egypt that he's supposed to tell to Egypt. This is in Jeremiah 46, starting in verse 7. Who is this that rises like the Nile, like rivers of surging waters? Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers of surging waters. She says, I will rise and cover the earth. I will destroy cities and their people. Charge, O horses. Drive furiously, O charioteers. March on, O warriors, men of Cush and Put, who carry shields, men of Lydia, who draw the bow. Put and Lydia are Egyptian allies that are west of Egypt, and Cush is an Egyptian ally southeast of Egypt. So they are all part of this army of Pharaoh Nekos that have banded together to go up and join the Assyrians to try to stem the tide of the Babylonians. But I'm sorry, verse 10, but that day belongs to the Lord, the Lord Almighty, a day of vengeance for vengeance on his foes. The Lord will devour, the sword will devour until it is satisfied, till it has quenched its thirst with blood. For the Lord, the Lord Almighty will offer sacrifice in the land of the north by the river Euphrates. I'm going to get my map out because we're going to need it here in a minute. And if you remember... The Assyrians used to have their capitals over here on the Tigris River. And they've, they've fallen back. They fell back to Haran, which is down in here somewhere. And now they're getting ready to... And that's been destroyed. They've fallen back to Karshemish, which is actually on the Euphrates River. And that's where Pharaoh Necho and his allies from all over Africa are, are marching forth. And they're going to meet right up here at this town right on the Euphrates called Karshemish. And the Lord says, I am going to have a sacrifice on the river Euphrates, and it's going to involve Egypt. Go up to Gilead and get balm, O virgin daughter of Egypt. But you multiply remedies in vain. There is no healing for you. The nations will hear of your shame. Your cries will fill the earth. One warrior will stumble over another, and both will fall down together. This is the message the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to attack Egypt. Announce this in Egypt, Jeremiah. Proclaim it in Migdal. Proclaim it also in Memphis and Tathanes. Take your positions and get ready, for the sword devours those around you. Why will your warriors be laid low? They cannot stand, for the Lord will push them down. They will stumble repeatedly. They will fall over each other. They will say, get up. Let us go back to our own people and our native lands away from the sword of the oppressor. And there they will exclaim, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is only a loud noise. He has missed his opportunity. As surely as I live, declares the king, whose name is Lord Almighty, pack your belongings for exile, you who live in Egypt, for Memphis will be laid waste and lie in ruins without inhabitant. Egypt is a beautiful heifer, 
But a gadfly is coming against her from the north. The mercenaries in her ranks are like fattened calves. They too will turn and flee together. They will not stand their ground. For the day of disaster is coming upon them. The time for them to be punished. I want you to remember this part about the mercenaries fleeing. Okay, just hold that thought. Egypt will hiss like a fleeing serpent as the enemy advances in force. They will come against her with axes like men who cut down trees. They will chop down her forest, declares the Lord, dense though it may be. They are more numerous than locusts. They cannot be counted. The daughter of Egypt will be put to shame, handed over to the people of the north. Why is the Lord punishing Egypt so harshly? Well, think about it. Egypt was present for the ten plagues. Egypt was present for the parting of the Red Sea. Egypt was present for the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. Egypt saw every single miracle the Israelites saw at the birth of their nation. They had no excuse for not believing in the Lord God Almighty. And they persisted in their idol worship. And this is what has come of it. Verse 25. The Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, I am about to bring punishment on Ammon, God of Thebes on Pharaoh, on Egypt, and her gods, and her kings, and on those who rely on Pharaoh, who, who as you know, their Pharaohs set themselves up as gods. Okay. I will hand them over to those who seek their lives, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his officers. Later, however, Egypt will be inhabited as in times past, declares the Lord. Now, that's kind of an interesting thing to say. Throughout the Bible, Egypt has had a big role to play, and many Bible interpreters will tell you that Egypt symbolically, if you want to look at the scripture symbolically rather than literally, Egypt often represents the world in the role that they play. Okay, um, I don't usually teach it like that, but if you go back and, and think about it, that does make a lot of sense. And Egypt has a significant role to play in the end times. That's why we're hearing news about Egypt now. All right. And they are going to be around at the tribulation. They have a role to play in battling with the Antichrist, the Bible says in Daniel. Jeremiah here foretells their defeat by the Babylonians, but promises that the Lord will not allow people Egypt to be completely destroyed from the face of the earth. Egypt will rise again. And you know what's cool? We know exactly when they're going to arise again because there was another prophet who lived at the same time as Jeremiah whose name was Ezekiel and Ezekiel had a similar prophecy. Look at Ezekiel 29, verse 1 and 2. Ezekiel is shortly after Jeremiah in the Bible. He's a major prophet because he's got a big fat book. 29 verse 1. In the tenth year, in the tenth month, on the twelfth day, the word of the Lord came to me. Well, that's pretty specific. And we happen to know because of what he said that that was this particular prophecy came to Ezekiel on January 7th, 587 BC. <laughs> How cool is that? Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Now skip down to verse 13. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. 
At the end of forty years, I will gather the Egyptians from the nations where they were scattered. I will bring them back from captivity and return them to Upper Egypt, the land of their ancestry. And there they will be a lowly kingdom. It will be the lowliest of kingdoms and will never again exalt itself above the other nations. I will make it so weak that it will never again rule over the nations. Egypt will no longer be a source of confidence for the people of Israel, but will be a reminder of their sin in turning to her for help. Then they will know that I am the sovereign Lord. That's all this all is about is God is just wants us to understand he is God. That's all these things are about. Well, it didn't take long for Egypt, for Egypt to begin its descent. The very same year the Lord told Jeremiah to write his prophecies down, the Babylonians under Prince Nebuchadnezzar met the Assyrians and the Egyptians at the Battle of Karshemish. This is one of the most famous battles in the history of our planet. It is well documented. We know exactly when it happened, and we know exactly what happened as a result of it. And the reason is because that battle was so important, it changed the balance of power in the world forever. Here is a quote describing the battle from the Babylonian Chronicles. So these are the Babylonians writing the record of the battle. Okay, they won it. And these are, we have their record inscribed in stone in cuneiform in various places, but in the British Museum. And I had passed around a little picture of that to y'all a few weeks ago. Here's what those tablets have to say about the Battle of Karshemish. They're talking about Nebuchadnezzar. He crossed the river to go against the Egyptian army, which lay in Karshemish. They fought with each other. And the Egyptian army withdrew before him. He accomplished their defeat and beat them to non-existence. As for the rest of the Egyptian army, which had escaped from the defeat so quickly that no weapon had reached them. Remember the mercenaries fleeing? They just dropped their weapons and ran. They didn't even go meet them. Okay. In the district of Hamath, which is in Syria, the Babylonian troops overtook and defeated them so that not a single man escaped to his own country. At that time, Nebuchadnezzar conquered the whole area of Hamath. Hamath is up here, basically right around here. So he chased them all the way from Karshemish down here before he actually stomped them completely out. This was just the first blow to Egypt struck by the Lord. Um, Ezekiel 30, the next chapter, verse 21. Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Remember I told you that, that he was getting them in 587 BC. This is when his prophecies were happening. Well, the battle of Karshemish had already happened. That was in 605 BC. Okay. So Ezekiel is getting these prophecies after the battle of Karshemish. And here's what the Lord says. The Lord says, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and it has not been bound up for healing or put in a splint so as to become strong enough to hold a sword. So at this point, you know, the, um, Egypt cannot yet pull an army together. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I will break both his arms, the good arm as well as the broken one, and make the sword fall from his hand. I will disperse the Egyptians among the nations and scatter them through the countries. I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in his hand. Notice he didn't name Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. 
He did, in the earlier prophecy, he named Nebuchadnezzar. In this one, he didn't. I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in his hand, but I will break the arms of Pharaoh and he will groan before him like a mortally wounded man. I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, but the arms of Pharaoh will fall limp. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon and he brandishes it against Egypt. I will disperse the Egyptians among the nations and scatter them through the countries. Then they will know I am the Lord. Well, the final blow to Egypt came at the hands of Cambyses, I'm probably saying that wrong, around 526 BC, so it's about another 50 years. Um, Cambyses was a Persian, and he had already conquered Babylon at that time. And I want to show you on my handy-dandy timeline um, so you can actually see what's happening in the world. You can see this is Egypt coming along here, okay? This is the, the city kingdom, city-state of Babylon. This is Assyria. They come along, and they join forces, okay? And they ultimately, the Medes split off, and they ultimately become just Babylon. That guy, that's Nebuchadnezzar, okay? That big gold spot right there, okay? Egypt's trucking along. You've got... Um, uh, various. This is Lydia, which is one of the the uh, allies. And look what happens here. Boom. Okay, that blue stripe is Cambyses that we're talking about now. He actually Egypt stops at that point. He conquers Egypt, Babylon, all of these. All right, and consolidates all of that part of the world under a single rule. Right? And that rule is the Persian rule. And that's actually talked about in Daniel. You remember the, the, the statue with the different parts? This was, this was the first part. This was where he said, okay, Daniel said, this king is going to, he's one of the beasts that he described. But then, you know, look what happens coming out the other end. We got, we got Egypt coming out the other end. Okay? So Egypt's going to arise. Well, let's, let's see what happens here. The final blow to Egypt came at the hand of Cambyses around 526 B.C. Cambyses was a Persian and had already conquered Babylon by this time, which I just showed you on the timeline. He marched on Egypt, and we have in historical record a diary of one of the Egyptian admirals that was fighting against him. And here's what was in that diary. The great king of all foreign countries, Cambyses, came to Egypt taking the foreigners of every foreign country with him. And when he had taken possession of the entire country, they settled themselves down therein, and he was made great sovereign of Egypt and great king of all foreign countries. His majesty appointed me his chief physician and caused me to stay with him in my quality of companion and director of the palace and ordered me to compose his titulary, his name, as king of upper and lower Egypt, Mesuti Ra. So we have here a diary of, the, of one of the conquered admirals all right, in Egypt, which has now been absorbed by the king of Babylon, the king of Persia who, at that time. Egypt ceased to exist. It did not become independent again until 404 B.C., 
which is about 120 years later. So, wait a minute. I thought Ezekiel said 40 years, didn't he? Some scholars will suggest that 40 is a symbolic number, meaning a long time in the Bible. And that is true. Certainly, numbers in the Bible don't always agree precisely. You know, we've studied First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and we know that those are parallel descriptions of the same time periods and the same events. But if you go and compare those, the order of events isn't going to match. Some of the numbers don't match up. Details don't match up. And that's because these were written by people. They, a lot of it was oral tradition that wasn't written down till later. It's not going to match up because we're human. And so don't ever get drawn into a debate with a Christian or a non-Christian about the infallacy of the Bible. Because you can absolutely point to places in the Bible where this number doesn't agree to that number. Or this order of events doesn't agree to that order of events. And you don't want to argue about that because that's not the point. It's not the point of any of these messages. All right. So don't get all bound up in trying to defend God. Let God defend himself. There is another explanation, I think, in this case. And that's if you look closely at Ezekiel's prophecy that we just read. It said the Lord would gather them back to Egypt from where they were in 40 years. He didn't say he was going to make them a kingdom at that point. He just said he would gather them back. And I, I think personally that it took them a while to actually evolve into being a kingdom. And I'll show you why. Here's our little timeline again. But look what happens for the next 120 years. Then all of a sudden there's a little, little blip. Okay. And it, Egypt tries to break away. And they actually do break away. And they have a, their own ruler for about 60 years. And then they get absorbed again. And then finally there's a major um, massive. You, you know who this is? <laughs> this was this was Cambyses. All right. This is Alexander the Great. Okay. Alexander the Great happened. He only lived a very short time. Before he, before he died, an untimely death. And when he died, his kingdom was divided up into the four generals that he had under him. And one of those was over Egypt. And that's how Egypt became a separate country, a separate kingdom once again. So you can see that most likely what has happened is they've ceased to exist as prophesied. Forty years later, the Lord begins to allow them to come back. They strengthen. They think they're strong enough to split off. Don't quite get off the ground. And then finally, they do become a nation again, just as prophesied by Ezekiel. But just as prophesied by Ezekiel, we do know that they have never, ever ruled the world again. And we know because of these prophecies, they never will. We know they will exist at the end times because they have a role to play. And that's something I want to talk about to you also. A friend of mine this week sent me a video. It was kind of a YouTube kind of thing of a preacher. 
And the preacher was preaching about current events in Egypt. And he was cherry-picking prophecies out of the Bible and applying them all to this time. Well, all the prophecies about Egypt don't apply to this time. Many of them apply to the end times. Okay, Many of them apply to the time that we're talking about here in Jeremiah. And he was applying them all. He was just jumbling them all up. And there was a lot of what I call hate language. Talking about Muslims and using enemy words and and things like that. And I just want to say, for the record, that our battle is not against flesh and blood. The, the people are not our enemy. They never have been and they never will be. Jesus called us to compassion for the people. And he called us to lay our lives down for the people. Yes, we have to, we have to fight. We have to fight evil wherever we find it. I could have picked any one of a number of sermons that are happening in our very town, you know, that are like that. And I just think it is leading Christians down the wrong path entirely. And, um, a lot of them probably use this to get their five, ten minutes of fame. Yeah. He was very definite about this. And, and I, when people start quoting prophecies to you, you need to be prepared. That's why we're looking at some of this stuff so that you understand the context and what the Lord's message is. If this message from the Lord has been repeated over and over and over, you could probably say it in your sleep. Repent. (laughs) Turn to me. Be blessed. If you don't, you will be dispersed and punished until you realize I'm the Lord, your God. And after that, I'm going to bring you all home and hug you. That's it. That is the Bible in a nutshell. Until the end. (laughs) (laughs) So, it is amazing to me to be able to trace these ancient prophecies through actually where they happen like we saw in that timeline. We can just see it happened exactly like the Lord said. And you can trust the Lord always. If if what's coming is bad and it's intended as punishment, he will always warn you ahead of time because he wants you to repent and turn from the path that leads you to destruction. And he always does exactly what he says he's going to do. That's one of the great lessons we learn from studying this history of God and his people. They show us over and over again how we can utterly trust God to deliver on his promises, both good and bad. Now look at your handout. There's a red part. This is your food for thought for this week. The red part. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't want to put you on the spot, but can anybody think of a promise the Lord has made to us collectively or to you as an individual? If you can't, you need to think about why you can't just come forth with a promise that the Lord has made to you. Because these are personal promises to you. There's a lot of reasons that might not happen, you know. But my challenge to you 
is to pick any book in the New Testament and read some part of that book with two highlighters in your hand. One to mark the blessings and one highlighter to mark what you have to do to get them. Okay, and as I was writing this up for you, this handout, I thought, well, you know, I ought to just do one so they understand what I'm talking about. So I just, out of my head, said, well, you know what? I know Ephesians is about living the Christian life. Let's do Ephesians. So I picked Ephesians 1, and I've highlighted in your handout, in yellow, the blessings. The Lord promised he has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. That's already happened. He chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. That's a promise. He adopted us as his sons. We have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins. We have the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. These are past tense. These have already happened. These are his promises. He promises to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, which is Christ. He predestined us for the praise of his glory. That is what we were created for, is to praise God. We were included in Christ. We are part of Christ. Where Christ rules, we will rule. And here's the other color. This is our part. When you hear the word of truth. Well, that was tough. (laughs) All we had to do was hear it. And the next part, having believed. We had to hear it. And believe it. That's what we had to do. That's why Jesus sent the, the apostles on the great with the great commission. Go out, preach the word, the good news to all the world until they have heard it. And have had a chance to believe. Then here's another promise. You were marked in him with a seal. He put a stamp on you. A seal. The promised Holy Spirit. Who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So we're like Coke bottles, okay, with a five-cent return, all right? Somebody's already paid the five cents. That's the Holy Spirit, and we have it. We can feel it. He operates in our lives. But that is just the tiniest inkling of the great inheritance that we have already waiting for us. Another promise, the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us. Oh, here's another part we have to do. We have to believe again. And that power is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the world to come. He has promised us that kind of power. It's not in the future. It's now. If you ever read Watchman Nee's, he's a Chinese, very famous guy, Watchman Nee. He's a pastor in China. He wrote um, a number of famous little books. One of the most famous is entitled Sit, Walk, Stand, in which he says the way to think about your Christian walk with the Lord is first to sit down. Sit down with Jesus at the right hand of God. And just behold what the Father does. Then walk. And then stand. And and it's a fabulous little book. If anybody wants one, I have several copies I can give you. I can bring them next time. And the last 
um, the last promise is the fullness of him. He will give us the fullness of him who fulfills everything in every way. That was one chapter picked at random out of the Bible. Those are some serious promises. But we need to have read them and contemplated them and owned them and thought, so what does that mean to me? How does that operate? How does that change my life? How does that operate in my life? All right? And if that's not tangible to you, this is a good place to start. And just read it and think about it. Even if it's just one verse, write it down and think about it when you drive to work. And say, Lord, I do not get this. Show me what this means. And he will. Our God is faithful and powerful to communicate. The only time he ever changes direction and doesn't do what he promises he will do is when he has mercy. (laughs) And doesn't annihilate us like we deserve. And usually that is because a godly man or woman steps in to the breach and asks for mercy. Remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah where 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 Abram's, Abram said, Abraham said, well, what if I can find 25 good men? And what if I can find 10 good men and five good men, one good man? You know, and, and the Lord said, yeah, any of the above. If you can find anybody righteous in those towns, I'll spare them. We can be that godly man or woman for Austin, Texas. That's how real this is. It makes a difference who you are. In Jesus, God's answer to somebody's plea for mercy is a permanent yes. If we will only repent from our pursuit of other gods and turn wholeheartedly to him. I love how the message translation puts it and I put it in your notes. Second Corinthians one verses 20 through 22. Whatever God has promised Get stamped with the yes of Jesus. In him, this is what we preach and pray. The great amen, God's yes, and our yes together, gloriously evident. God affirms us, making us a sure thing in Christ, putting his yes within us. By his spirit, he has stamped us with his eternal pledge, a sure beginning of what he is destined to complete. So after the Battle of Karshemish, the Assyrian Empire completely disintegrated. Assyria ceased to exist as an independent power, and Babylon was now the new world power. Flush with victory, Prince Nebuchadnezzar continues marching southward, crushing everybody who tried to stand in his way. And the little kingdom of Judah was directly in his path until all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar received word that his father, the king, Nabopolassar, had died. Nebuchadnezzar stopped in his tracks, went back to Babylon to claim the throne. And Judah was spared for the moment. Egypt had been crushed. It's going to be a few years before they can regain enough army strength to challenge the Babylonians again. And the Babylonians had returned to Babylon. The only difference as far as daily life in Judah was that now instead of paying heavy tribute to Assyria, they pay heavy tribute to Babylon. Daily life just went on and people continued to make fun of Jeremiah and to pick on him. 
All right. And, and now Baruch as well gets picked on. So let's go back and see what's happening to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 25, starting in verse 1. The word came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So Jeremiah said to all the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, for 23 years from the 13th year of Josiah until this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. And though the Lord has sent all his servants, the prophets, to you again and again, you have not listened or paid attention. They said, turn now, each of you, from your evil ways and your evil practices, and you can stay in the land of the Lord that the Lord gave you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not follow other gods to serve and worship them. Do not provoke me to anger with what your hands have made. Then I will not harm you. But you did not listen to me, declared the Lord, and you have provoked me with what your hands have made, and you have brought harm upon yourselves. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish them from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. That's important. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. I will bring upon that land all the things I have spoken against it, all that are written in this book and prophesied by Jeremiah against all the nations. They themselves will be enslaved by many nations and great kings. I will repay them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. The Lord has said it, so we will, can be assured it will happen. If Judah does not repent, they will be taken into captivity by the Babylonians and remain captives for 70 years. And since we have the timeline handy, might as well just take a quick look at that. That 70 years, here's, here's Nebuchadnezzar takes them into captivity they are, you see these little trickly, trickles here and here and here and here? Those little trickles? That's the 70 years. That's when they're allowed to return. This is Israel up here. It actually did happen. And we have the record of it, in Dan, uh, part of it in Daniel and then later in Ezra and Nehemiah. We'll keep that in mind in our study. We'll watch for it to come to pass. But let's continue with what's happening to Jeremiah in Chapter 36, verse 5. Then Jeremiah told Baruch, I am restricted. I'm not allowed to go to the Lord's temple. So you go to the house of the Lord on a day of fasting and read to the people from the scroll the words of the Lord that you wrote as I dictated. Read them to all the people of Judah who come in from their town, and perhaps they will bring their petition before the Lord, and each will turn from his wicked ways, for the anger and wrath pronounced against this people by the Lord are great. 
A few months after Jeremiah and Baruch finished writing the scroll, a time of fasting before the Lord was proclaimed for all the people in Jerusalem and those who had come from the towns of Judah. I'm kind of skipping a little bit down. I'm in verse 10 now. Baruch read to all the people at the Lord's temple the words of Jeremiah from the scroll. When Micah heard all the words of the Lord from the scroll, he went down to the secretary's room in the royal palace where all the officials were sitting. And after Micah told them everything he had heard Baruch read to the people from the scroll, all the officials sent Jehudi to say to Baruch, bring that scroll from which you've read to the people and come here. So Baruch went to them with the scroll in his hand. And they said to him, sit down, please, and read it to us. So Baruch read it to them. And when they heard all these words, they looked at each other in fear and said to Baruch, we must report all these words to the king. And then they asked Baruch, tell us, how did you come to write all this? Did Jeremiah dictate it? Yes, Baruch replied. He dictated all these words to me and I wrote them down in ink on the scroll. And then the officials said to Baruch, you and Jeremiah go and hide. Don't let anyone know where you are. After that, after they put the scroll in the room of Elishama, the secretary, they went to the king in the courtyard and reported everything to him. And the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll. And Jehudi brought it from the room of Elishama, the secretary, and read it to the king and all the officials standing beside him. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter apartment with a fire burning in the fire pot in front of him. And whenever Judy, Jehudi had read three or four columns of the scroll, the king cut them off with a scribe's knife and threw them in the fire pot until the whole scroll was burned in fire. The king and all his attendants who heard all these words showed no fear, nor did they tear their clothes. And even though the temple officials urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. Instead, the king commanded three men to arrest Baruch the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet, but the Lord had hidden them. After the king burned the scroll containing the words that Baruch had written at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, take another scroll and write on it all the words that were on the first scroll, which the king burned up. And tell the king, this is what the Lord says, you burned that scroll and said, why did you write on that that the king of Babylon would certainly come and destroy this land and cut off both men and animals? Therefore, this is what the Lord says about you, Jehoiakim, king of Judah. He will have no one to sit on the throne of David. His body will be thrown out and exposed to the heat by day and the frost by night. I will punish him and his children and his attendants for their wickedness. I will bring on them and those living in Jerusalem and the people of Judah every disaster I pronounced against them because they have not listened. So Jeremiah took another scroll, gave it to Baruch, and Jeremiah dictated. Baruch wrote on it all the words of the scroll that the king had burned in the fire, and many similar words were added to it. Well, that was the last straw. King Joachim had thumbed his nose at the Lord. He had thumbed his nose at King Nebuchadnezzar. And after paying tribute to Nebuchadnezzar for three years, King Jehoiakim rebelled and stopped paying tribute. Second Kings 24 tells us that the result of this arrogance was a series of raids. Judah was attacked by the Arameans, the Moabites, and the Ammonites, probably all under the command of the Babylonians, and Nebuchadnezzar himself 
attacked Jerusalem to bring King Jehoiakim to heal. In Second Chronicles 36, 6 and 7, it says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, attacked him and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also took to Babylon articles from the temple of the Lord and put them in his temple there. Second um, Chronicles 36, 8. And Jehoiakim, his son, succeeded him as king. I'm sorry all their names sound alike. This is, is Jehoiakim, not Jehoiakim. So the new one is Kin, but you don't have to remember him because he was 18 years old. He ruled for three months, three months and 10 days. Second Kings 24, verse 10. At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And Nebuchadnezzar himself came up to the city while his officers were besieging it. Jehoiakim, that 18-year-old, his mother, his attendants, his nobles, and his officials all surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar immediately. In the eighth year of the reign of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiakim prisoner. As the Lord had declared, Nebuchadnezzar removed all the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and took away all the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. He carried into exile all of Jerusalem, all the officers and fighting men, all the craftsmen and artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. This is the, this is when Daniel got taken to Babylon. And he made Mattaniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. Now, why did Nebuchadnezzar set up another king in Jerusalem? It sounds like he already conquered him, right? Why would he do that? Well, for one thing, it was customary to leave somebody in charge of the poor people and the land and the farming and somebody to collect the taxes. Normally, they were a governor. But in this case, there is an answer. And the answer is in Jeremiah 37, verse 5. The reason Nebuchadnezzar made a king in Judah and Nebuchadnezzar left was because Pharaoh's army had marched out of Egypt. And when the Babylonians who were besieging Jerusalem heard the report about them, they withdrew from Jerusalem. So Egypt has now had enough years to gather an army back together. All right. They're never going to be a major kingdom again. And they're fixing to get destroyed some more by the Babylonians. But right now, they've got enough of an army that Nebuchadnezzar is not sure he can stand up to them. We know from historical records that this was Pharaoh Hophra who came in March. So Nebuchadnezzar left. And King Zedekiah asked Jeremiah to check with the Lord to see what was going on. Because that was really unusual. And here was the Lord's response. Jeremiah 37, verse 7. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of me. Pharaoh's army, which has marched out to support you, will go back to its own land, to Egypt. Then the Babylonians will return and attack this city, Jerusalem. They will capture it and burn it down. This is what the Lord says. Do not deceive yourselves, thinking the Babylonians will surely leave us alone now. They will not. 
even if you were to defeat the entire Babylonian army that is attacking you, and only wounded men were left in the Babylonian tents, they would come out and burn this city down. Why? Because the Lord has ordained that's what's going to happen. Then Jeremiah has a vision. He has a vision of a cup of wine. But instead of wine, the cup is filled with the Lord's wrath. And the Lord tells Jeremiah to force the nations to drink from this cup of wrath. And here's what he's supposed to tell them. Jeremiah 25, verse 29. See, I am beginning to bring disaster on the city that bears my name. And will you indeed go unpunished? You know, he's talking to the, to the nations around Jerusalem. Okay. So the Lord is saying, Jeremiah is supposed to tell these nations, look, Jerusalem is beginning to fall. These prophecies are starting to happen. 10,000 people have been carried off into captivity. Don't think you're going to be left out of this, all you nations around Jerusalem. This is coming to you. You will not go unpunished, for I am calling down a sword upon all who live in the earth, declares the Lord Almighty. Now prophesy all these words against them and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high. He will thunder from his holy dwelling and roar mightily against his land. He will shout like those who tread the grapes, shout against all who live on the earth. The tumult will resound to the ends of the earth, for the Lord will bring charges against the nations. He will bring judgment on all mankind and put the wicked to the sword, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Look, disaster is spreading from nation to nation. A mighty storm is rising from the ends of the earth. And at that time, those slain by the Lord will be everywhere from one end of the earth to the other. They will not be mourned or gathered up or buried, but will lie like refuse on the ground. So Jeremiah gives this message to each of the nations surrounding Judah. Chapters 46 through 51 in Jeremiah are the prophecies directed at each of these nations. We already read the prophecies to Egypt, the prophecies to the Philistines, and we know how they were fulfilled. In chapter 48, Jeremiah prophesies to Moab. Moab is right here. It's this part along the east of the Jordan River. And since you, this is Jeremiah 48, verse 7. I'm kind of skipping around in, in, chap, in chapter 48. It's most of that chapter, all of that chapter. Since you trust in your deeds and riches, Moab, you too will be taken captive. And Shemosh, which was their idol, will go into exile together with his priests and officials. Verse 13. Then Moab will be ashamed of Shemosh, as the house of Israel was ashamed when they trusted in Bethel. That was that. Remember when King Jeroboam built, made those two golden calves and the man of God came and, the, and King Jeroboam's arm withered? That happened at Bethel. So the Lord says Moab's going to be just as ashamed of their idol as Israel was of the, of the gold calves they set up. Verse 29, we have heard of Moab's pride, her overweening pride and conceit, her pride and arrogance and the haughtiness of her heart. Moab will be destroyed as a nation, verse 42, because she defied the Lord. It's because of her pride and her arrogance. That certainly is a sin we're in danger of committing as a nation, I think. Yeah, I was, I was just going to bring up, you know, you see a lot of people say, how dare we would go and you know, apologize to any nation for what we do. We don't need to apologize to anybody. 
Yeah. Food for thought, huh? Yeah. Verse 47. Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the days to come. Chapter 49 has similar prophecies about Ammon, which is the land just north of Moab. It will be destroyed, but will someday be restored. And we now know, of course, that those kingdoms are now part of modern-day Jordan, which certainly has had its fortunes restored. In fact, their capital city is Ammon. All right, comes directly from this name in the Bible. Come on. <laughs> then I said it wrong, but it's the same word. It's the same place they're talking about. Then there are some particularly harsh prophecies directed toward Edom, which is south of Judah, just under the Dead Sea, down there where Sodom and Gomorrah were. It is, Edom is to be utterly destroyed, never to rise again. And you know why that is? It's because those people were descended from Esau, Israel's twin brother. These are the kinsmen who failed to come to Israel's aid. In a prophecy by Obadiah, the Lord warned Edom, Obadiah 1.12, you should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. So Jordan is supposed to rise again. All right. Egypt is going to rise again. Moab it's not going to rise again. And I looked it up in Wikipedia. <laughs> you want to know what Wikipedia said? This is a quote. The last unambiguous reference to Edom is an Assyrian inscription of 667 BC. It has thus been unclear when, how, and why Edom ceased to exist as a state. Well, Wikipedia may not know, but we know why they ceased to exist as a state. It just disappeared. Chapter 49 has prophecies against Damascus, Kedar, Hazor, and Elam. They're very similar, so I didn't go through all those. But of course, if you think about it, they didn't have email. And it wasn't as simple as Jeremiah just writing letters to the, all these kingdoms, telling them, sending them scrolls, telling them what the prophecy was. No, it was a lot more embarrassing than that. All these surrounding kingdoms had sent ambassadors to establish relations with the new king Zedekiah. And here's what the Lord made Jeremiah do. It's in chapter 27. Make a yoke out of the straps and crossbars and put it on your neck, Jeremiah. This is like a yoke for oxen type yoke. Then send word to the kings of Edom and Moab and all these places we just read about through their ambassadors who have come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah the king and give them a message for their masters that says this is what the Lord Almighty the God of Israel says tell this to your masters with my great power and outstretched arm I made the earth and its people and the animals that are on it and I give it to anyone I please now I will hand all your countries over to my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I will make even the wild animals subject to him. All nations will serve him and his son and his grandson until the time for his land comes. Then many nations and great kings will subjugate him. 
If, however, any nation or kingdom will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, or bow its neck under his yoke, I will punish that nation with the sword, famine, and plague, declares the Lord, until I destroy it by his hand. So do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your interpreters of dreams, your mediums, or your sorcerers, who tell you, you will not serve the king of Babylon. They prophesy lies to you that will only serve to remove you far from your lands. I will banish you and you will perish. But if any nation will bow its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will let that nation remain in its own land to till it and live there, declares the Lord. So Jeremiah says, I gave the same message to the Zedekiah king of Judah. I said, and he's picture him wearing this yoke. Bow your neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon. Serve him and his people and you will live. And Jeremiah didn't just tell this to King Zedekiah. He told it to the priests and the people in verse 16 of chapter 27. Then I said to the priests and the people, this is what the Lord says. Do not listen to the prophets who say very soon now the, Lord, the articles from the Lord's house will be brought back from Babylon. They are prophesying lies to you. Do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and you will live. Wow, is that treason or what? He's telling the people. Forget this. Serve the king of Babylon. Raise the white flag. Just let him in. I have a question. For yeah. You, when you talked about um, the Lord saying that um, they were going to bow to his servant, King Nebuchadnezzar, this must have been after Nebuchadnezzar was the you know, had lost his mind, and then he came to bow his knee to the Lord. Because there for a long time, he, he didn't, didn't. That's right. Bow his knee That's to the right. Lord. So that's okay. right. right. If you if you look in the you know the question was how did this fit into the history of King Nebuchadnezzar, and if you read in Daniel, there was a period of time where Nebuchadnezzar rebelled against the Lord and became essentially a wild animal himself until he was willing to humble himself before the Lord. And at that point, he became a servant of the Lord. Okay. So apparently, this would have happened in that time frame. You know, I, it, I don't have anything to base it on except common sense, mm -hmm. right? Verse 19 of Jeremiah 27. For this is what the Lord Almighty says about the pillars, the sea, the movable stands, and the other furnishings. These are all parts of the temple that are left in this city, which is Jerusalem, which King Nebuchadnezzar did not take away when he carried away Jehoiakim into exile, along with all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says about the things that are left in the house of the Lord and in the palace of the king of Judah and Jerusalem. They will be taken to Babylon, and there they will remain until the day I come for them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. Wow. That's why we know that all the main parts of the, of the Judaic temple, of the temple of the Lord, are somewhere in Babylon. Somewhere in that vicinity. And they will never be found. Until Christ comes the second time. There is a millennial kingdom. It will be after the battle of Armageddon. He establishes the millennial kingdom. And a new temple is built. Ezekiel's temple. And at that time, the temple furnishings will be discovered in Babylon. And brought back to Israel. 
That is so cool. So they're in uh, Iraq somewhere. They're in Iraq somewhere. I wonder if they walked right over them when they were looking for the WMDs. Probably so. I mean, but the Lord has them hidden, just like He placed angels at the at the at the entrance to the Garden of Eden, which was over there somewhere in that exact vicinity. Okay, the Lord has hidden them, which makes me wonder if that's exactly where He did hide them was in the Garden of Eden, because that's protected who knows just speculation but it's kind of cool um you can read all about the battle of armageddon in ezekiel chapter 39 and about how it, it will be such a huge battle it will take the israelites seven months to bury the dead chapter 39 ends with this description of the lord's tenderness towards his people Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. For though I sent them into exile among the nations, I will gather them to their own land, not leaving any behind. I will no longer hide my face from them, for I will pour out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord. Then chapter 40 through the end of Ezekiel describe the building and the furnishing of the new temple, the restoration of the land of Jerusalem, and the book of Ezekiel ends with this verse. And the name of the city from that time on will be, the Lord is there. And it will be because he will be there. Jesus will literally be there. So here we are at the end we're almost done back to poor jeremiah mr terror terror on every side standing in court with a wooden yoke on his neck every day berating the foreign ambassadors and telling them destruction was coming they could say a lot of things about jeremiah but they couldn't ignore him jeremiah would wander from court to the temple back to court again telling these prophecies to everybody he came came in contact with and in jeremiah i'm going to end with this story in jeremiah chapter 28 because one day a false prophet named hananiah came up to jeremiah and said this is what the lord god almighty says In two years, I will bring back all of the temple treasures and all of the palace treasures and King Jehoiakim from Babylon. And I will restore all the fortunes of Judah and everything will be happy once again. And we will all live happily ever after. And you can just see Jeremiah just looking at him saying, and Jeremiah said, well, I hope it happens like that. But. I want y'all to think about this. Every single prophet that we have in all of our records has said, if you worship idols and you don't repent, you're going into captivity. You will be scattered. Other people will, will govern you. And I have to say, Hananiah, that any prophet that prophesies something besides that under these circumstances, knowing that we have not repented and not worshipped the Lord, that prophet will only be judged a true prophet of the Lord if what he says comes true. And furthermore, Hananiah, this is what the Lord says to you. The Lord has not sent you, yet you have persuaded this nation to believe in lies. Because which one do you think they believed, Hananiah or Jeremiah? Which one was comfortable? Duh, Hananiah. 
therefore, this is what's going to happen to you, Hananiah. This very year, you will die. And two months later, Hananiah was dead. We're going to stop there.